Hey, AJ, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Are you still fasting this morning? I am. Uh, it's an everyday thing for me, man. Great. I'm expecting you to be extremely sharp on this podcast since you're fasting. I've had toast with butter and jam, so I'm, I have every excuse to be lethargic. Hopefully you're doing better than, um, than the LockBit operators. We're uh, going to be talking about the takedown of the LockBit ransomware operations. Also on the show today, we'll have an in-depth look at the cyber dimensions of the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Coming up on Safe Mode. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl, host of Safe Mode. AJ Vicenz, CyberScoop reporter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So this week we saw federal authorities make a big move against the LockBit ransomware gang, which I think probably most listeners of this podcast will be familiar with. LockBit is the world's most prolific ransomware gang, and federal authorities in the United States and elsewhere moved against them this week. Talk us through what happened. Yeah, so heading into the end of last week and then over the weekend and into the early part of this week they pulled the trigger on an operation that's clearly been you know probably years in the making to take down lockbit uh like you said the biggest or most prolific publicly known ransomware operation kind of going at the moment um you know a sense of scale on this whole thing it's just i'm trying to go through the numbers on the various releases but you think of the money involved here? I mean, they let, let me back up. Ransomware operations confusingly go by the name of the malware itself and also sort of like a name for a group or a central group in the middle. Um, and so Lockbit came onto the scene in late 2019. And since then, according to the FBI and others, roughly 144 million in extortion payments worldwide. Um, more than 2,000 businesses and other entities, critical infrastructure, private businesses, uh, healthcare facilities um, hit, you, you know, quite active, quite successful in those terms. Um, then this operation gets unveiled. Uh, it kind of popped on Monday. People started to notice that the main site had been seized by a, a sort of menagerie of international law enforcement agencies. And then on Tuesday morning, they announced sort of the, the full scope. And I tried to just write this out. So I'm reading from my list here. Uh, the law enforcement agencies seized 34 servers. There were two arrests, uh, one in Poland, one in Ukraine. Two indictments separately were unsealed in the U.S. 200 cryptocurrency wallets were frozen. Um, nearly 1,000 decryption, victim decryption keys were obtained. Uh, there was an overall decryptor released. Uh, there's sanctions in the U.S. And then, interestingly, on Friday, they're promising some sort of reveal about who the main driver behind all of this is, a, a person that goes by the moniker Lockbit Sup online, Lockbit Support, Lockbit Sup. And they're sort of teasing that they're going to reveal who that person is on Friday. We'll see what happens. Um, but you know, 
it's just the breadth of the operation is pretty, pretty interesting. So how do you think that the, we've had a series of takedown operations against um, big uh, ransomware groups earlier this year, we saw the FBI move against Alf V. Now they're moving against Lockbit. What do you think is different about the operation at targeting Lockbit? So some of these operations in the past, the way these things sort of play out is that, first of all, the people are located in Russia, uh, typically, or other places where the cooperation with Western governments is such that um, the actors behind these operations are not going to be extradited. So you're dealing with that dynamic. You can't make arrests usually unless these guys get on a radar they make a mistake, they travel to somewhere, they cross a border and get picked up. They do sometimes get arrested, but not typically, um, because now they're not going to be vacationing in, in Europe, for instance, um, or going to Australia or something or a friendly place. Um, it, on the technical side, the way these servers can sort of just be taken down and reestablished somewhere else, it makes it kind of a whack-a-mole situation. And what, what's different here is that it's such a thorough owning by the law enforcement agencies of the Lockbit infrastructure that it's going to be sort of hard for Lockbit SUP or whoever's involved there to sort of reconstitute. I will say though that I'm looking right now at a new mirror that popped up yesterday and it seems to have all of or a fair chunk of Lockbit's victims' data posted to it. Mm. That said, you know, it's kind of unclear, you know, these people can now maybe access decryption keys uh, if it's more of a recent attack. They, you know, it's not as quite as effective, but it, it does show that there's a little bit of sort of effort to reconstitute here. And so it's, it really is kind of a game of whack-a-mole, but in this case, the, the way they sort of went about this really damaged, you know, the biggest operation going. Um, I will just say I just got a notification uh, across the uh, uh, that popped up that the State Department has finally announced its uh, rewards of up to $15 million for information connected to the Lockbit operation. We were the first to report that that was going to happen, and now it has. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a across-the-board um, operation, really, just targeting every aspect of this that they possibly can. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the messaging behind this operation? From where I'm sitting, it seems like they're, the way that this is being presented publicly and uh, when I look at some of the splash pages for this, for example, it seems like the messaging around this takedown operation it has been, it's almost as if like the Justice Department is trying to troll Lockbit a bit. Do you... Am I reading that correctly? Do you think, you know, do you think there is kind of a messaging component to it? How do you see that aspect of the operation? I absolutely think there's a messaging component here. And they've, you know, the Justice Department, the FBI, and also the international agencies, in this case, I think one of the lead ones being the UK's National Crime Agency, they've, they've wanted to sort of not only take down the operations, but communicate to these cr criminals that they are very much in their systems. They're very much in their networks, uh, both literally on a technical level and both and figuratively. 
they have informants, they have witnesses, they have people feeding them information. But also if you kind of zoom out a little bit and you think about internet culture and, and hacker culture and the way the internet sort of developed, these there's so much trolling that goes on. There's, um, you know, there's, there's, there's ways to communicate with each other that say, I, I basically own your stuff. And this is very evident in this case. Um, like you said, the splash page, the Lockbit website would post the victims on little cards on their site, essentially. And you clicked in to see what the business was. And there might be some sample documents in an effort to try to force them or into paying the, the, the extortion, you know, they took over the site and every little card is now press releases, the back end leaks, um, who is Lockbit support, uh, the sanctions, indictments, here's a recovery tool. They really went in on taking over the site and really demonstrating full control. And the last thing I'll say is that the FBI and past operations in particular, you know, in the when they talk to reporters about operations they carry out in the D Department of Justice in the US, they are clear about the fact that they are trying to undermine trust in these communities. So they really want the uh, affiliates that work with the ransomware operations and all of the various sort of components that go into this ecosystem to not trust each other, to think that one or the other has been infiltrated, to think that it's sort of a fake honeypot operation. I mean, all the different smoke and mirrors that go on to try to slow this down. Um, and I think it's it's having an effect. Mm. All right, AJ, thank you so much for your great reporting on this. I'm sure we'll come back uh, and talk about Lockbit once again, maybe when they reconstitute. Maybe they won't. We'll see. We'll, we'll find see. out. Right. Yeah. Thanks, AJ. Thank you. When Hamas fighters cross into Israel on October 7th, killing some 1,200 Israelis and kidnapping hundreds more, it marked a new era of the conflict between Israel and an array of militant groups. Most of that conflict has played out in the form of brutal, bloody fighting, but it has also taken place online in the form of cyber operations. Joining me to discuss the digital dimensions of that conflict is Adam Myers. As CrowdStrike's head of counter-adversary operations, Adam is one of the leading students of cyber conflict and a longtime observer of cyber operations in the Middle East. Adam Myers, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Adam, I'm wondering whether we might begin by rewinding the clock to October 7th. When Hamas launches its attack, how does that play out online? So initially, we start to see various kind of disinformation, misinformation, propaganda things kind of occurring. Uh, but very quickly, we start to see DDoS attacks targeting Israel. Uh, we start to see um, various uh, claims or, or attempts to disrupt the aerial projectile warning systems within Israel. And remember, at that point in time, there were a lot of rockets coming into Israel uh, as part of the, the uh, initial kind of conflict uh, kicked off. And that is you know, part of, and, and I think that, you know, a lot of these Hamas and, and Hezbollah aligned groups took a lot of cues from Iran, who I think was watching very closely as the Russians uh, used this playbook in Ukraine. And so what, what played out in Israel back in October was, you know, very similar to what we've been seeing playing out in Ukraine, you know, going back to 2014. 
these, you know, the, the operations that occurred in the immediate aftermath of the attack, do you think that these were kind of like a strategic, well-thought-out component to the operation? Or is this was this something that you think was more kind of ad hoc, spur of the moment, folks piling on and trying to have some kind of impact to an operation that they themselves might not have had any role in or, or even been, you know, been privy to the planning of? You know, I, th I think it's a really good question. And if you look at how those kinetic attacks actually unfolded, there was a lot of folks that were streaming uh, attacks that were occurring. Um, there was a lot of folks that were sharing information, kind of live updating it via Telegram and, and, and other mechanisms. And I think that that was done in public view, effectively, of a lot of the hacktivists that were either operating in those regions. And we, we tracked quite a few threat actors in region, both uh, from a Hamas and Hezbollah perspective, and others that were sympathetic outside of that. So kind of pro-Palestinian uh, uh, hacktivist groups. Uh, and uh, as that started to unfold, we started to actually see some pro-Israeli hacktivist groups join the fight as well. So there was just a lot of kind of noise going on. Mm. But maybe not, sounds like some planning around maybe some of the propaganda operations around the attack, but then maybe some of the, the more type, the attacks trying to have a psychological effect, maybe those are slightly less planned and more opportunistic is what I'm hearing. Yeah, I think a lot of organic kind of behavior started to occur. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there may have been some kind of agent provocateurs that were uh, effectively in there trying to drive the, the, the direction or the... Um, maybe the uh, narrative around that, uh, especially in the early days, it was very chaotic. And I think it was, you know, a lot of folks that wanted to have a, a say and a voice in, in, in the conflict started to use hacktivism uh, organically. And then there was also nation state threat actors, what we would call fake-tivists, who start jumping in as well. Mm. Yeah, talk us through that. What do you mean when you, when you use that that term "fakeivist" and and what were you seeing? What types of operations were you seeing from them in the aftermath of October seventh? So, fakeivists are kind of a deniable aspect of an operation where you might have a nation state threat actor that doesn't necessarily want to take credit directly for something, but they will uh, they they want it to kind of be known it was them, right, in a deniable way. So. Good example of this, you might remember back to the, the hack of Sony Pictures Entertainment in 2014. And in that instance, there was this group that took credit called the Guardians of Peace. Well, the Guardians of Peace had never existed before, and we've never heard from them since. And this was consistent with what we had seen North Korea doing at that time, creating these kind of fake hacktivist entities to claim credit for an attack and to kind of put out specific messaging around that attack without having it being directly, you know, overtly uh, connected back to the nation. And so we see this uh, with groups like Solomon's staff, uh, or sorry, Moses' staff, Solomon's soldiers. Um, there's groups like Cyber Avengers that show up and, and have, you know, significant overlap with other Iranian threat groups. So um, this becomes very, very messy as soon as it spills into the cyber domain. Yeah, so those, 
I'm glad you brought up um, some of these Iranian groups, which we've talked quite a bit about on this pod. My colleague, AJ, AJ Vicent, has been writing about them quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think about the impact of, of the operations of these groups aligned with Iran? What do you think they've been able to accomplish in, in the context of the Israel-Hamas conflict? You know, I think um, the goal, let's let's start with what the goals are. And this is why I think that they took a lot from the Russian playbook in Ukraine, which is to kind of increase the pressure and the fear factor for the general population. And so targeting things like, you know, and, and this goes well before this kinetic incident in October, we had been seeing different Iranian fake divist groups trying to target uh the Israeli population by going after the missile defense systems in the past, um, they would create, they also for their espionage operations would create uh, fake missile alert applications that they would try to put into the mobile markets. Uh, we saw them, you know, putting out propaganda and, uh, and, you know, they had, you know, what they claimed to be, uh, I'd say signals intelligence, but they, they had these kind of recordings of Israeli uh, police and military people talking, and they would kind of use that in, in these high level, uh, you know, and this is another tie back to the fakedivism. You start to see these videos coming out from the fakedivists or that like, purported hacktivists that are pretty high quality uh, production, which is another indication when, you know, we're looking at these things. And maybe I should divert here and say, when you look at a hacktivist activity where they're claiming to be kind of an organic group that is doing this for some altruistic or political purpose, they, you know, and those groups do exist. Um, but when you start to look at it and you're like, this group has never existed before. And then they show up with high quality video content. They show up with an actual uh, capability where they, they target something like a missile defense system or they target CCTV cameras, or they target uh, HMI devices, right? And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, I think. Um, but, you know, they show up with capabilities that you wouldn't expect a ragtag group of hacktivists that just formed over a particular flashpoint event to be able to field so quickly. And those are the things that we start to factor into determining is this organic hacktivist activity, um, which there certainly is plenty of that out there, or is this some sort of, you know, fake hacktivist group that is being driven by some nation state that is trying to make it look like there's hacktivists, but in reality, it's, you know, operators in, in green suits or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you mentioned it earlier in this conversation, the attacks on, you know, Israeli missile warning systems, which I think were some of the ones that really, you know, garnered the most attention in the early days of the conflict. Uh, I'm wondering if you have a sense of like how severe the impacts of those have been. I mean, do they... Like they definitely they garner headlines, right? But you know, do you think they're having an impact among the population? Like, is there any way to gauge that in your mind? I, I don't know how you can necessarily gauge that, but I think part of it also comes down to assessing is this accurate, right? So, mm -hmm. um, really early on, I think it was uh, Anonymous Sudan and Ghost Jackal had claimed that they had disrupted the projectile warning system. And one of the things that you tend to see with legitimate hacktivist groups, which I would say, you know, Anand Sudan and, and Ghost Jackal probably closer to that, um, that they'll try to take claims for things that they didn't do. Um, and so, you, you know, you might see this in a data leak 
where they'll take a bunch of old data that's known to have been leaked. They'll repackage it and claim that they did it. And, and that's traditional kind of things we see from real hacktivist groups, right? They, they're kind of bark is louder than their bite. And so if there was some disruption to the projectile warning system, it could have been a you know configuration issue or it could have been like some other cause that, that caused that projectile warning system to go down. And you'll see these hacktivist groups maybe were running a DDoS attack that nobody noticed at the same time. And then they're kind of like, they claim credit. Uh, I kind of think of that scene from uh, The Hunt for Red October. Uh, if you remember that movie when, mm-hmm. you know, the submarine, you know, breaches the surface and it comes out and the Russian, the captured Russian soldiers are on the deck and they're, they're yelling. They're like, the captain scared them out of the water. Mm-hmm. And it was an emergency, you know, it, I won't go through the, the whole plot of the movie, but you, you get what I'm saying that, that like something happened. And the interpretation was different than the reality of it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So we're speaking ahead of your team's report, uh, release of your your annual threat report, and you know a lot of your findings around Israel and Gaza are documented in this this report, and we'll we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, and one of the things you observe in, in that that report is that you've observed extensive attacks on Israeli critical infrastructure as part of the the conflict around. Um, or as part of the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Can you talk us through what those attacks look like, uh, you know, what types of systems have been targeted, and how you assess the impact of those operations? Yeah, so I, you know, the aerial projectile warning systems were absolutely some of the, uh, the top targets for various groups, whether they be hacktivist or nation-state, um, because they want to you know, expand that fear and try to kind of create this opening for, um, you know, there to be more kinetic attacks, you know, and, and to kind of cause panic in the, the citizens of Israel. And, you know, a lot of that stuff, I think, was somewhat legitimate, some of it not. Um, there there were certainly uh, things where they claimed that they were um, uh, doing things uh, around the airport, for example, um, we've seen uh, groups like Team Insane Pakistan claiming DDoS attacks against various websites, and we've seen um, different uh, DDoS-type activities that, that have claimed uh, action. I think the most interesting one, though, when you talk about targeting, it didn't even – it wasn't relegated only to Israel, but there was a group called Cyber Avengers that was able to um, – disrupt uh, some critical infrastructure. They, they claim that they targeted Israeli power uh, stations. Um, and then they showed back up and hit a target here in the U.S., or actually two targets that I'm aware of in Pennsylvania. Uh, one was pretty widely known was the uh, water, uh, water facility in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. And they had connected directly to an HMI, uh, human machine interface, part of the operational technology environment. And we're effectively reflashed it with a uh, w- with a message about the conflict in uh, in in Israel, and that that's something that I think is pretty interesting when you start to see a group actually targeting arbitrarily HMI systems, right? That could have real world consequences, and um, I think it, it sounds like it didn't, thankfully. But you know, when you start to look at stuff like that, that's where these activities and i wouldn't say cyber avengers is necessarily a hacktivist group i think that there's probably some ties there to iran but um you know it gives you a sense of what the uh 
what what the art of the possible is. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to get your read on, I'm glad you brought up the attacks on the Aliquippa uh, water utility. It's, you know, in the last couple of weeks, Ann Newberger, the White House, top, uh, one of the top cyber advisors in the White House has been talking a bit about this. And, you know, while on the, on the one hand, she says that, you know, that attack is a good example of the risks to U.S. critical infrastructure, you know, in the context of a regional conflict in which, you know, a cyber actor in uh, one part of the world can reach out and touch critical infrastructure in um, someplace very far away. But then on the other hand, the she's kind of downplayed it as not really being much of a cyber attack because it was perpetrated by... Um, the use of a default password, I think it was 1111, yeah. uh, that allowed the attackers to, to gain entry into the, uh, the human machine interface in question that was, that was compromised. So in that sense, kind of trying to, trying to downplay it a bit and say, well, you know, should we really consider this a cyber attack when it um, was carried out using this really quite pedestrian technique? Um, I'm curious to get your read on it. You know, how, how significant do you think it is? How seriously do you think we should take an incident like what happened in, in Aliquippa, where after all, there was no impact on the water supply at the end of the day? Well, you know, that is just one aspect of what happened there. But I think it's also worth noting that Aliquippa was not uh, unique. There were two, when I looked at the time, there were 221 devices in the United States alone that were connected. There was 173 in Australia, 131 in Italy, uh, I think 112 in Singapore, 105 in uh, uh, the Czech Republic. And, you know, the distribution of these things were, you know, all over the place. There were some in Dallas, there were some in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, there were some in Washington, D.C., New York, Chicago had quite a bit. And these are all devices that were connected directly to the internet, right? And so by looking at port 20256 and, and looking at the, uh, the, the string for the uh, connection, right? If you scan the whole internet looking for that port, you can find these things pretty quickly. So, you know, I think that it, it probably should be ref reframed as, you know, this is, this is something that's a problem. There was a brewery that was also reportedly impacted in Pennsylvania. Yeah, there was. And so, what's up? Yeah, there was. Absolutely. Yeah, there was a Pittsburgh Pittsburgh brewery had to shut down yeah. operations briefly. They came back online quickly, but yeah, the beer supply was disrupted. Well, if you mess with people's beer in Pittsburgh, you're going to have a real problem, yeah, right? Exactly. That's, that's I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, like there's a lot of those devices connected, 221 now. Granted, maybe they didn't all have default passwords, so they weren't impacted. Uh, but, you know, the reports I heard were that they didn't even know that there was something wrong until they rebooted the HMI because it was a blank screen. Mm. And a lot of these things are remotely located and who knows which ones were targeted and successfully compromised and nobody's even noticed yet. Or they just rebooted it and kind of thought that was odd and, and didn't say anything. So, you know, the point is that, yeah, it was, you know, it was it was shame on you for having a default password, but also you know, shame on 221 other people for having an HMI connected directly to the internet, not behind a VPN or any sort of security device. And I think that that is the reality of critical infrastructure. Pivoting a little bit, one of the interesting observations from your report is that some of the key Hamas-aligned groups that you track 
have stayed on the sidelines over the course of this conflict. I'm wondering why you think that is. Well, um, it's, it's a good question. I think that, uh, one, some of those groups haven't really been active in recent years. Those are groups that we had associated with Hamas, but uh, had not necessarily been active recently. And if you take a look at what happened in the time frame after that, right? Israel basically, I think, formally declared war that day. Um, and, you know, the, the ground conflict starts, you know, shortly thereafter. And they start putting restrictions on power and internet going into and out of Gaza. And if you're a group that's actually active there, uh, it's going to be real hard to connect to the internet and do a bunch of cyber attacks. If there's no power, there's no internet connectivity and there's uh, tow missiles and, and things like that coming down on you. So I, I, you know, I think that the groups that you would expect to have been active were probably suppressed because of the kinetic action as well. Hmm. Let's turn to the Israeli side of the conflict. Um, Israel obviously has some of the world's most capable hacking crews. Um, we've seen some indication of how they've been deploying them. I'm wondering how you've observed um, Israeli cyber operations um, over the course of the conflict. What's that looked like from where you sit? Yeah, so I, you know, I think we saw some organic uh, hacktivist type activity. Uh, from within Israel directly. We also observed some kind of friendly, particularly coming from India, groups that were conducting hacktivist activity on behalf of the you know, general uh, plight of, of Israel in that conflict. But you know, largely, you know, if you're looking at it from a nation-state perspective, um, the Israeli you know, state hackers, right? The, the intelligence units and the military units and the police units and things like that, they're probably not going to be doing hacktivist activity, right? They're, they're going to be doing uh, cyber intrusion for intel collection. They're going to be doing things that might disrupt, you know, infrastructure. But again, when you take out the power and you take out this, the internet, there's really not much you're going to need to do in that theater because there's not too much to hack, right? When there's no power, no internet. Um, so I think, you know, what we've seen largely were, um, you know, probably more L-Int, uh, electronic warfare and electronic intelligence operations and not uh, cyber operations directly targeting Gaza. Mm. We've covered a bit on this podcast, some of the operations carried out by a group known as Predatory Sparrow. This is, you know, believed to be an Israeli hacking group that's targeted critical infrastructure in Iran, including... Um, several steel manufacturing plants in the past, and now more recently, they've hit the gas distribution network in Iran on a few occasions. And this has basically resulted in you know, folks pulling into gas stations, trying to refill their um, their tanks and their cars, um, seeing error messages on the screen and telling them to complain to the the Ayatollah. Um, I'm curious just what you think of those operations, how they've been carried out, and what Israel's trying to achieve there. We haven't really seen too much firsthand from a CrowdStrike perspective because we don't do business there in, in Iran. Um, so we have not seen firsthand any of the actual activity. And then the things that we find out about are pretty heavily uh, constrained because it's coming through the lens of, the, you know, of Iran, which is largely you know, controlled media. So we haven't 
had too much visibility there. We've certainly seen um, other groups as well targeting Iran, uh, groups that are maybe more closely aligned with MEK, which is um, effectively an Iranian dissident group that was, uh, the, if you remember back to a wiper attack that occurred in Albania uh, last year, uh, that was associated with an um, uh, Iranian group. Um, uh, the reason that that attack occurred was because they were uh, hosting and, and kind of supporting this MEK group. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I think that in terms of predatory sparrow specifically, we don't have much firsthand visibility. So everything we've seen are coming from other media outlets or uh, from within Iran itself. Mm, okay. Yeah, fair enough. So kind of stepping back a bit, when you think about the course of the conflict, between Israel and Hamas from, you know, October 7th to now and the way that it's played out online. What do you think the lessons are for from this conflict for future conflicts? Well, you know, I think, um, first of all, one of the things that was really interesting for me was seeing the use of generative AI, uh, particularly in the social messaging around the conflict. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, imagery created through generative AI and things that, you know, you would see these pictures of uh, people with six fingers or cats with five legs. So that, you know, really, I think, democratized the ability to create these disinformation, misinformation campaigns for, you know, anybody that wanted to, um, uh, to do that. And now, you know, we've recently seen OpenAI release Sora, uh, which allows you to do it with full content video. And so, you know, that is, I think, really part of the interesting aspect of this is how they were able to layer that and, and bring, you know, cyber attacks are typically thought of as hacking back and forth. But a lot of what we're seeing is that this plays out in the social media realm and it uses disinformation and misinformation to propagate messages. And so that, you know, that's probably the most interesting thing I've seen from the conflict in terms of the hacktivism you know we've certainly seen uh, a number of wiper attacks targeting israel there was there was something called bb wiper uh for example that um was was discovered uh we've seen uh groups like uh cyber tufan uh conducting attacks we've seen um, just a whole host of uh of of these groups that you know we associate you know you, you hear a name like cyber tufan um and it turns out that that's tied to Haywire Kitten, one of the threat actors that we track, or you see like Moses staff conducting data wiping attacks against Israeli ICS targets. And that's something we associate with Vengeful Kitten. So, uh, and as I mentioned, BB Wiper, which we associate with Banished Kitten, which was uh, one of the groups that targeted Albania uh, way back when. So, you know, there's, there's, I think a lot more of this conflict that is from a cyber perspective, tying back to Iran, then a lot of people recognize. Mm. Well, Adam, I think that was a great note to close on. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.